When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, I heard tell show. We got ourselves Wednesday here, uh, January the 27th, 2022. Year of our Lord continues to roll on. Hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street, around the world. Thrilled that you're with us. A lot to do today. Uh, we're going to update our situation over in the UK. Boris Johnson, we were talking with our friends in the UK uh, last week about it. There's some breaking developments on that. So we're going to go back and touch on that story. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, with our friend Michael Siegel. He's back again, uh, our scientist buddy, one of the smartest people on the planet. We're going to delve into natural immunity. We're going to turn down noise on it because there's a lot of noise, a lot of people using the term. Are they using the term right? What does the science say? Where does the science get it right? Where does the science get it wrong? Where are the commentators getting it right and wrong? So we're going to talk natural immunity, COVID-19, all those kind of great things with our buddy Michael Siegel a little bit later on in the program. Also, we're going to touch in during the pandemic, a lot of the big tech online companies did very, very well. Amazon went through the roof, things like this. But there are other companies like Netflix, like Peloton. We got a story about how they're coming back down to earth after the pandemic. We'll discuss what that means for business. Also, into the program, a special little story. You know, we always try to end on an uplifting uh, note. A small business owner, very special situation, and a cookie company that is doing a whole lot of good besides just the good to your belly and your soul that a good cookie can do. Uh, but first, let's talk about the soul. Do you know that the, one of the most important things in your life is what's called an end-user license agreement? Now, what's an end-user license agreement? Well, anytime you get a new app or a new website or new anything nowadays, uh, you know you have that little box and you got to click on the box and accept the terms of use or the end-user license agreement if it is a website or an app because that is end user license software. It's the end user. You're the last person to get it. You're the consumer of it. So you're clicking through that and none of us read it. Let's all be real here. And you just click on it because you want to hurry up and use the app. You want to use Facebook. You want to use Twitter. You want to use Instagram. You want to use whatever. The problem is all the fine details in there are very important to your life because now that tells you what of their your private information they can and cannot use and how they can use it. So like we've said, there's a lot of noise right now about big tech being regulated by Congress. And we're not all the way for that. That needs to be parsed out carefully because the problem legally is you didn't read the fine print. You clicked on it. You adhered to it. You agreed to it. And you're playing by their rules. We shouldn't just automatically want Congress to come in and regulate something just because we're being lazy. But that's another topic for another day. The fact of the matter is these end user license agreements give these companies a whole lot of power over your personal information. 
And that way they give you a whole lot of power over you. You need to understand things like Facebook. Those are information companies. It's not a social network company. They make their money buying and selling advertising based off of information. So that's how you always want to view these big tech things. These are information companies and the information they need is you. The commodity is not what they're selling. The commodity is you. Now, why do I bring all that up for this? Because we have a story out in uh, BuzzFeed News. This was part of our friend uh, Jim Swift's newsletter. Uh, You can sign up for it for free. He always has good little tidbits at the end of the day. But this brought us to attention. And the question that is raised here, uh, Emily Baker White is the writer for BuzzFeed News. Nothing sacred. These prayer apps reserve the right to sell your prayer. Now, there's been a big jump in online religious apps and prayer apps. So they get an app and they design it and they say, well, we're going to take your prayer requests or we're going to take your notes and we're going to build communities so you can talk to other people. That's all well and good. But the problem is what we started out talking about, that end user license agreement. What information are you agreeing that this company can use? Because how the legal terms of those is written is very important because it tells you you can put something on here and the company can or cannot use it. So from BuzzFeed News, we're going to skip down into the piece just a little bit because it uses one example, but it says, quote, it is common for free apps to profit by sharing their users' data and to be vague about exactly how and to whom they share it. But users feel like Prey.com, that was the example they were using, Data practices are at odds with the deeply personal nature of prayer itself. But that's the problem, because where you see prayers and you see very personal, intimate information, these companies see data to plug into their analytics, because now they can tailor information to you specifically. Getting divorced? Well, they can funnel things like counseling and lawyers and things like that to you specifically. That's the same reason why if you Google something, all of a sudden, all those Google-specific ads start popping up and everything else you're on. Just imagine if they did that with all your prayer requests at church. What a mess that would be. That's what's happening here. Why is that happening here? Now, this isn't just a situation, understand, of big tech and data. This is a specific business model. As people have turned to religious apps as a replacement for in-church, per, in-person church services amid the COVID-19, Silicon Valley investors have seized on them as an opportunity to commercialize a set of conversations that have historically been the most private among people between them and their God. Venture capitalist Catherine Boyle put it bluntly in 2020 Washington Post op-ed, quote, a holy trinity is in place, isolated people hungry for attachment, religious desperation for growth in an online world, and technology investors searching for the consumer niches yet to digitize, end quote. Since then, technology and investors have matched Boyle's enthusiasm, a new Catholic app called Hallow, you know, as in Hallow be thy name, Hallow, which offers devotional content with titles like, quote, Overcoming Hopelessness, announced in November it had closed a $40, billion, $40 million excuse me, Series B fundraising round in December. A similar app called Glorify, gotta love branding, also raised $40 million. These apps, while also collecting extensive information about their users, are backed by some of Silicon Valley's best-known prospectors. Greylock Partners, they're behind that prayer.com that was previously mentioned, Anderson Horowitz, Glorify, and Peter Thiel, Hallow. 
Uh, Greylock, Anderson, and Thiel are also known for their investments in Facebook, which recently ramped up its own prayer offering by rolling out a new tool called Prayer Pros for some religious scholars to move to digital. And the data profiteering that could come along with it is an inevitable part of the church's reinvention. COVID-19 has simply accelerated and already shifting norms and practices around Christian worship. That's out of BuzzFeed News. Um, Let's turn down the noise on this just a little bit, though. Let's start with the end-user license agreement. You got to read those things, folks. Um, So much of your life is online. And if you're not reading that agreement before agreeing with these companies who are wanting that information as a monetized business policy, they don't care about you. They just want your information so they can datatize it. But understand anything you put online, I know it's privacy. I know it's your information. We just got to live in the real world and have some grown folk talk. If you put it online, it's no longer yours. It's out there and people can find it. Some of this has a little bit of personal responsibility on it. Having said that, this is some really despicable stuff. These venture capitalists, and we could talk about some of these people specifically, especially Peter Thiel, who's very politically motivated and who is backing some very questionable candidates like the J.D. Vance's of the world. But let's not get off onto that because we have to make sure we don't commit FCC violations on this here program that is a family-friendly program, and I don't like to talk about such things in public. But these people have agendas, and one of their agendas is they want this information for some ill-gotten gains. It's not just business. They Data is a commodity. Data is one of the most important commodities we have in our world right now. And just imagine people who have not only business interests, but political interests and powerful ambitions wanting your most intimate things that you want to just share with your faith community or you only plan on sharing with your God. Your best bet on that is to do just that. Keep it between you and your God. Keep it between you and your individual prayer circles. Now, I'm not against technology. I think it's a great thing. There's isolations. There's shut-ins. There's people that can't get out, can't get out to their church communities, not just COVID, people with disabilities, the elderly, the sick and the shut-ins, we used to call them all the time. You know, I remember growing up in our church, we used to make tapes, you know, cassette tapes and take to them. Technology is a great and powerful thing, especially for people of faith and people that are looking for community. We need to understand it's also a business. And we need to understand that beyond culture and politics, these businesses are looking for niche markets because niche markets make money. And religion in America is very, very big business. So before you go clicking off your prayers, just like your politics, just like your culture, make sure you're reading that end-user license agreement or find somebody that can explain it to you because it's not yours anymore once you put it online. Now it's out there for everybody, and there's some things you don't want out there. You want them to be private. You want them just to go to God. Much like with religion, just take it to God yourself. You don't need the middleman. More heard tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We like to touch back in on stories we've previously covered. We don't ever want to do the drive-by thing where we just drop an issue or knowledge on a touchy subject and just move on. We always want to follow up on them. Uh, we had on last week from Young Voices, Portia Barry Kilby uh, from over in the UK, and we talked extensively about UK politics, specifically Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who is in a heaping help of trouble over there politically. His approval rating is through the floor. When we talked to her, we were hinting at a coming investigation into the allegations that there was a whole bunch of partying going on at 10 Downing Street and elsewhere. 
um, that has riled the country and made him look really bad on top of all the other issues like COVID, like the economy and general purpose politics over there. So uh, fast forward back to today and we have an update. Um, We have the Metropolitan Police in England and we're reading from Sky News here. Uh, Police are now investigating Downing Street parties multiple after receiving information from the cabinet office. Uh, I can confirm, this is a quote, that the Met is now investigating a number of events that took place at Downing Street and Whitehall in the last two years in relation to the potential breaches of COVID-19 regulations, Met Police Commissioner Cressida Dick tells the London Assembly. Uh, The force commissioner's name, Cressida Dick, said the decision to investigate was made as a result of information provided by the cabinet office investigation into the gatherings and, quote, my officer's own assessment. Uh Uh-huh. A cabinet office spokesperson said the inquiry led by senior civil servant Sue Gray, quote, is continuing and there is, quote, ongoing contact with the Met. That's the Metropolitan Police Force. Sky News understands Ms. Gray's report will not be published while the Met's investigation is ongoing. Reaction to the news, Labor Party's deputy leader, Angela Rayner, said Boris Johnson had become a national distraction and should resign. Labor, of course, is the opposing party to the Tories or the conservative party that Boris Johnson belongs to, if you're not familiar with UK politics. She added, with Boris Johnson's Downing Street now under police investigation, how on earth can he think he can stay on as prime minister? Conservative MP David Davis, who last week called on the MP to go, said this nightmare gets even worse. This is a quote. We have to be able to get back to dealing with real threats as quickly as possible. Fellow Tory Tobias Elwoods told Sky News, I think that confidence is slipping away. This adds to the misery that the party and the government continues to endure. Matt Fowler, co-founder of the COVID-19 Bereed Families for Justice campaign, said the prime minister has already lost all credibility. And the fact that the leader of the country is now under police investigation is deeply reprehensible. He needs to resign. It goes on and on. It talks about a birthday party he had at 10 Downing Street. That's the prime minister's official residence. Uh, it would be the equivalent to the White House here. Um, also, as Portia got into uh, the juxtaposition of the staff and the prime minister partying while the queen sat alone at the funeral for her husband was a horrific look that upset a lot of people just on the optics. Uh, Boris Johnson has said he will not resign. Uh, just to turn the noise down on this. Um, This is not survivable by Boris Johnson. Uh, What's going to happen now is every government official in the conservative party that has any kind of government posting, whoever had a drink on the clock is going to get a look over. This is, they're not going to want to fool with this. So at some point we're just going to reach the tipping point where they need Boris Johnson to go to make this all go away. That looks like it's going to happen sooner rather than later. I don't think it will take till this report comes out. The prime minister had said during prime minister questions last week when we talked to Portia that he was waiting for the report to come out to say whether or not he did anything wrong, which was ludicrous on its face. I think he's done. It's a matter of when. Uh, Part of what's going on here, as Portia discussed, they don't have a successor for him in place in the conservative party that could step in immediately. So that would slow this down a little bit. However, Uh, I think Boris Johnson is in big trouble, and I think he's probably done. You can go back and listen to all of Porsche's comments on the Good Talks playlist on YouTube and or on any of the podcast platforms if you're a subscriber. So go do that. Catch up on the news. But we wanted to touch up on that item, and we will continue to follow the story as it unfolds. I'm sure we'll be talking to our many great contributors that we have over in the U.K., If Boris Johnson does end up resigning, never boring over there. We always want to keep a global perspective on things 
and our British friends are always fun to check in on, see what they're doing, uh, especially right now where no matter how bad President Biden thinks he has it, uh, Boris Johnson's probably got it a little bit worse. More heard tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. He's one of our favorite. This officially makes him the most presented guest in the history of Herd Tell. Congratulations, Dr. Michael Siegel. How are you, sir? I'm good today. How are you? I'm fantastic. How's life on Hoth? For those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can see his lovely, usually sci-fi themed backgrounds today has taken us to the setting of The Empire Strikes Back and the ice planet Hoth. But I, I do have a, a very warm winter coat that my brother sent me because he was afraid my tauntaun would freeze before I got to the first pecker. <laughs> <laughs> well, just remember, if you got to cut it open for uh, for warmth, it's the smell that gets you more than the cold. Yeah. Um, in other news, though, you have been doing what you've been doing for a while for us at Ordinary-Times.com. You have been doing the yeoman's laboring work of trying to explain the science side of the COVID pandemic to people like me who need it explained to us like we're five years old. Um, you're taking on another one of those conspiracy theory tropes, memes, and uh, as you called it, cyclical thinking, not circular thinking, cyclical thinking, because this same thing keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, natural immunity. Before we dive into it, though, let's get the nomenclature right. So, Professor, uh, educate us. Natural immunity is absolutely a real thing, but what should the term mean to us? So what natural immunity uh, means, or you can call it what I call it infection-based immunity, is when you have had a disease and that gives you a resistance to it. It's not necessarily 100%. So, and that is Natural immunity is what we had before we had vaccines. You get measles and you'd have immunity and you never get it again. Um, the reason we invented vaccines was because in order to acquire that immunity, you have to get the disease. And some of these diseases can be very bad. So um, with COVID, people who have had the COVID infection have some uh, immune-based resistance to it. And one of the debates has been uh, about how that compares to vaccine-based immunity. Uh, the science on this has gone back and forth a little bit, but it seems to be converging on the idea that for the original strain of COVID, vaccine-based immunity was a little better because it was very specifically targeted at the spike protein. For the Delta variant, um, the vaccine immunity is still pretty good. Um, it's about 80% effective in preventing infection and over 90% effective in reducing hospitalization and death. But actually natural immunity or infection-based immunity seems to have an advantage there that that seems to be more like 95%. Now we don't know yet what the deal is with Omicron. Omicron we know does evade immunity, uh, however acquired, the exact numbers we don't know yet because it's only been around for a few weeks. So we should know that at some point. Of course, almost everyone will have had Omicron by then, so it won't matter. But um, the better effectiveness of natural immunity to prevent infection has been seen by some as people saying, well, natural immunity is better than vaccine-based immunity. But, you know, a friend of one of the people I who follows me on Twitter pointed this out. If your chance of getting infected if you had the vaccine is 20% and your chance of getting the infected if you've had it before is 5%, your actual chance of getting COVID is 105% because you had it the first time. And so... 
acquiring the vaccine immunity means you're exposed to what we now know to be very low risks from those vaccines. Whereas acquiring natural immunity means the very high risk of COVID itself. And you had a wonderful guest on a few uh, last week talking about long COVID and things like that. We now have evidence that the vaccines do reduce the incidence of long COVID quite significantly. Why are we having such trouble? What you just laid out that natural immunity and the vaccine extrapolate this out a little bit. And I'm assuming probably the therapeutics and treatments. This is true, too that we aren't dealing with just one kind of virus here. You just laid out three different kinds and the natural immunity is different for each. The vaccine reacts differently. I'm assuming the therapeutics probably react differently to each. Uh, and they also, we have the data now, they're also affecting different uh, age groups differently and different people groups differently. Why are we having such a hard time just saying natural immunity works for these people, but it won't work for these people. The, vi the vaccine works in this case more than this case. And these are all degrees. Everybody just wants to lump this stuff all together and just buzzword it. And I think that's where a lot of the trouble's coming from here, isn't it? I think so. The, it's, it's also that people want to choose sides. I mean, to be fair, for the people pushing vaccines, one of the things I've been saying for a while is we should consider a prior infection to be the equivalent of a vaccination. That if you've had it in uh, COVID before and you get uh, the vaccine, that's, that's effectively being boosted. In fact, that's one of the reasons we thought that the boosters would work because we saw the best immunity we were seeing was people who'd had COVID, then got the vaccine. They had the best resistance to the, to the virus. And so the, I, I think we have a tendency, and especially when things get politicized, to think of this as either or. And I think that you know, if you've had COVID, you, know, you don't, don't want to get COVID, obviously. I mean, you had it last week, and even with the vaccination, it was pretty tough. You don't want to get COVID, but if you had it, that does create a resistance. But a vaccine is a way to get to the same place to effectively, I mean, the difference between how well a prior infection protects you against COVID and how well a vaccine protects you against COVID are relatively small, but the vaccine, you don't get sick in the first place. You get, you get a couple of days where you're feeling kind of crappy and then, and then you're better. I think another thing that happened here, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, I, I, I started calling this the stand effect. If you remember the Stephen King book, The Stand, and they've made a couple uh, not so great movie adaptations of it, in my opinion. The book is excellent. It's probably a seminal work. But in The Stand, I think people hear natural immunity and they start thinking about the stand where the world is wiped out by a super flu. But these small group of people are just naturally immune to the super flu. They didn't get it at all. I think there's some just thinking among people where they just think natural immunity means you're not going to get any disease at all. And there isn't any scientific evidence of that that we know of, although there probably are some people like that that won't get it no matter what, for whatever reason. Yeah. A few weeks ago, you talked about uh, Peter McCulloch, who was on the, you know, has been on the Joe Rogan show and other places. And one of the things he's been saying is that natural immunity is hundred percent. Once you've gotten COVID, you won't get it again, but we know that's not true. We've, we've been able to Look at people's antibodies. We've been able to measure their, their, the amount of antibodies in their blood. We can see that people can get coronavirus two or three times. And so it's not like measles where you get it once and that's done or chicken pox where you get it once and that's mostly done unless you get shingles, which I did a few years ago. It was very painful. It's not like smallpox where you get it once and it's done. This is much more like the flu or a common cold where you have some resistance for a while and that resistance fades. It doesn't go away completely. Your body has multiple lines of defense. 
And while some of those lines of defense lose their effectiveness as the virus evolves and as your immunity fades, others retain that resistance. That's why uh, that's the biggest reason why Omicron hasn't been as bad. It's still been pretty bad, but it's been better because we have a lot of people who've been vaccinated, a lot of people who've had prior infections. And so they, even though their antibodies don't recognize Omicron right away, their body has other layers of defense that eventually recognize it and can rally to their defense. Yeah. And we're talking to Michael Siegel, our scientist friend who helps make the complicated nice and easy for the rest of us to understand. Um, Now, I'm no anti-vaxxer at all. I've actually had the vaccines for this disease. My whole household has as well. But even with that and even understanding the sun, let's just play devil's advocate for a second. I do think it's a fair question to ask when we start talking about, you know, fourth, fifth, whatever number of boosters we're going to get to. Those are fair questions to ask is how many times are we going to do boosters? I think it's a fair question to ask how young is too young to vaccinate a child with And even though we have good data because of the technology, still a new and mostly experimental series of vaccines. How can we address those concerns, which are legitimate scientific and questions for us as consumers, without falling down the rabbit hole of being anti-vaccine? I I think we have to think of them in terms of cost benefit. Right now, they've been trying fourth shots. They're not actually showing very much efficacy, which uh, isn't very surprising. Um, they are talking about uh, tweaking the vaccine to make it more effective against Omicron or hopefully to make a universal vaccine. I think this will will probably settle down to where this would be a yearly thing like the flu vaccine or something like that, or maybe every other year, depending on how the virus uh, evolves. So I, I do think those are legitimate questions to say, you know, and we've talked about this before, what is the end game here? You know, not, I mean, the pandemic, the virus may never go away, it may become endemic. But where do we get to the point where we're stable? And I think that the idea where we have, you know, maybe a yearly vaccination where we continue to tweak it, hopefully improve it so that it can be every other year, every three years, something like that. I think that's where we should be thinking about headed. Um, But right now, one of the things about the pandemic is we have to respond to these things in real time. And we don't get the luxury of, you know, looking back and, 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 uh, and taking, uh, taking the time to get the right to answer is perfect. So, uh, so I think those are legitimate questions. And I think a lot of scientists are asking those questions. I mean, especially with the emergence of Omicron, that has really changed the game quite a bit because it's, it's so much more infectious, but is, does appear to be less lethal. And so that has changed the calculus of when certain interventions are justified when they're not. Unfair question, but is uh, the COVID strands that we're dealing with, is it ever just going to be part of the flu shot, uh, quote unquote, and I know it's not specific to the flu shot, but just people don't realize the flu shot is actually a, you know, it's a concoction of things for various strains of flu. They pick which one they're going to release each year. They're kind of guessing, educated guess, obviously, but they're guessing which strand is going to be the worst. Is it going to be that type of a situation year to year, do you think? I think so. Um, And this is speculation, and there are people who know way more about this than I do. But from the very beginning, they've been they've been speculating that this would become like a, a yearly thing. Um, coronaviruses do change; they do evolve. We've, we've known that for a long time. The flu does that, and so it may become a thing where we have to guess. But even in years where we get the flu guess wrong, it still does confer resistance. It still makes it so that you're less likely to go to the hospital and less likely to die. A few years ago, they got the flu concoction wrong. Um, they guessed wrong, and we got a very different strain of flu. 
but people who'd had the vaccine and I was one of them who got the vaccine and then later got the flu got way less sick than people who hadn't gotten the vaccine. So that's one of the things that we are learning here that these vaccines, you know, the vaccine we have now was designed for the original wild type COVID, the one that broke out in Wuhan. It has now dealt with two very different variants, Delta and Omicron, and dealt with them reasonably well. And so I think that gives us hope that we can continue to keep this thing in check with future versions of the vaccine. And there was just an announcement from the, uh, I think it was the, from UCM RID or one of the military facilities that they have a very early version of what they call a universal coronavirus vaccine, which would be able to not only deal with this particular one, but with the other coronaviruses that are always circulating. Yeah, talking to Michael Siegel. Uh, when we come back, uh, he's actually written not just about some of these conspiracy theories, but actually how people get to those conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about that. His latest piece in Ordinary-Times.com. Continue to talk about COVID, natural immunity, and all kinds of scientific knowledge with our buddy Michael. Her tale continues right after this. Oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, buddy. You are back in the pages of Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, you are one of our frequent contributors on matters of science and technology, but uh, you do something that I don't like, which is math. Uh, you use a lot of math and a lot of numbers, and you put them in these weird equation things to try to explain some of these conspiracy theories. Um, I'm being a little facetious here, but some of the most well-known and well-used conspiracy theories involving COVID right now really just comes down to people, and maybe not even in bad faith, maybe they really believe it, but it's just some bad math and bad equations, isn't it? Yeah, and the what we were talking about with natural immunity, that's what kicked off today's uh, post, that people were posting that natural immunity is six times as effective as the vaccine. Well, the natural immunity is not 480% per effective. What they've done is they've taken some numbers out of context that you know, the vaccine makes you five times less likely to catch the disease. Uh, infection-based immunity makes it 20 times less likely for you to catch the disease. Therefore, the infection-based immunity is four times better, but that's not how it works. It's 80% versus 95%. And so some people are saying that in bad faith. Some people are just, you know, sometimes these things come out in the press and they're just not very clear with the way they're stating them. And so uh, that's one of the things I try to do is to, to clarify where, what the numbers are actually saying, because numbers can lie to you in it with a straight face in a way that people can't. Yeah, I think Vince Scully paraphrasing, he talked about stats being uh, a lamppost that can illuminate or but most of the time it's just holding a drunk up. Um, <laughs> you talk about uh, in your piece at Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, you get deep into the numbers, but it's really a study at the heart of this. Before we talk about the specific study, though, is have we gotten a better understanding over the last two years? You're a scientist, so you come from the world where everything is papers and studies and research, and you do a paper, and then you do the, the rebuttal paper, and you discuss that, you know, doing a, re, a paper like that is a very research academic type thing. Those don't always translate to the general public, so they just see, oh, scientific survey, this must be accurate because it's scientific and it comes from this big institution with a big word and there's 30 people on the masthead who wrote it. That's not how these things really work though, is it? I'm sort of that you, we are always sort of 
dancing around the truth that you get a paper, it makes a claim, other people study it and so forth. And especially when you're dealing with, I mean, I deal with astrophysics. So, you know, the stars don't lie to you or, you know, don't tell you they weren't eating junk food and stuff like that. Whereas with, when you're trying to study health, it's much more complicated. There are many variables. We don't really understand a lot of how the human body works. Um, we, you know, COVID is a perfect example. There are many complicating factors. Diabetes makes it more likely that you're going to get seriously ill. Having previous uh, problems with breathing makes it more difficult. Age makes it more difficult. And so it's very difficult to tease these things out. And sometimes people do their research wrong. That happens. Sometimes there was a very unfortunate incident early on where someone did a fraudulent study that got a lot of press. Um, but sometimes you just get unlucky. Sometimes the people you have studied just happened for one reason or another to be particularly unhealthy or particularly healthy, or just the numbers just rolled the way they did. You know, you can imagine, you know, when people do political polls, sometimes they show the candidates jumping all over in popularity and they're not really, you just got a different sample. So that's why we replicate results. That's why we do multiple studies. That's why we do meta studies. That's why you want to take all the data and combine it. So when I talk about the difference between say infection-based immunity and vaccine-based immunity, I try to sort of summarize what other all the studies are sort of converging on, not pick one study in particular. Talking to Michael Siegel, talking a little COVID and uh, natural immunities. Uh, he's been our go-to guy on this for a while, for a lot of reasons. Uh, Michael, one of the things you do point out here to uh, kind of give the natural immunity crowd a little bit of credit here, though, is you do, after you look at the data, think it would be appropriate to consider a infection of COVID as somewhat equivalent to having an immunization dose. As in, you still may need a booster, you still may need to take precautions, you still may need to do other things, but that would be an appropriate way to look at this. Yeah, and I, there are people who would disagree with me on that, who would say that uh, we don't know enough, you know, that they should still get vaccinated, et cetera. And we don't think vaccination is going to hurt people, so uh, that's why they tend to emphasize that. But uh, I do think that is, even if it's not scientifically necessarily a middle ground. I think politically, it might be a little middle ground that I, I borrowed your phrase of turning down the noise, that if we can get to a point where someone says, look, I've had COVID, do I really need the vaccine? And we can either say, all right, you're good. Or yes, you need the vaccine. Here's why we think that the vaccine will help you resist future infections. I think that would be a much better approach than having this sort of either or where it's only vaccines or only natural immunity. And we see that these are two sides of the same coin. I've asked you this before, but I, I want to bring it up here because you just touched on it. Um, the, the breakdown in communication between the scientific academic community, between the general public and between um, public leaders, political and bureaucratic, even medical ones. Do you see any evidence that that's getting better? Because it seems like we're going to have the, the disease is going to go endemic and pass us by before we figure out how to talk about it. Or do you see more hope or do you see it that way that we've really blown an opportunity to fix how we communicate with each other on scientific matters like this? I keep coming back to the fact that the vast majority of people who are eligible for the vaccine have taken it. That, that to me, that speaks to me much louder than talking heads on the radio or guys on Twitter, no matter how many likes they get, that hundreds of millions of Americans rolled up their arms and took a vaccine. 
That to me speaks much more to what they're thinking and who they're listening to than anything else. Talking to Michael Siegel, our uh, scientific buddy, he always brings us good knowledge on these sorts of things. Uh, you brought it up earlier, so I'll just ask the question again. Uh, you have so much noise out there. You talked about turning down the noise. That's what we like to do on this program. You have really big platforms who uh, will put out people that are questionable in material. I'm a free speech guy, so I don't have a problem with them doing that. If you don't like it, don't listen to it and or get involved and push back. Uh, I got a platform. Call me. I'll put your piece out there pushing back on it. But what should people do to get good scientific information on this stuff? Because you do have uh, the Joe Rogans who I bad faith, I think, is too harsh for him, but he does do the free thinking thing to the point of being unmoored and just going with whatever. Um, then you have the really bad faith actors that you've written before that are out there purposely pushing bad information, a media and a scientific community where frankly, the public just doesn't know who to trust. Where do they start? Where do they dig in trying to get that good information besides just talking to people like you who spend a lot of time trying to make sure they got it right. To me, the people, the voices I most trust are the ones who are clear about what we don't know about what we're still learning that this is what we think now, it may change in the future. And at some point go back and say, all right, this is what we get wrong. So yeah, I've talked about uh, Dr. Ellie Murray. She's on, on Twitter. Uh, she's a great voice. Um, Dr. Angela Rasmussen, another one. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, former FDA head, I think. He's been a really great voice of, of moderation, of not getting too much panic, but being serious about the challenges we face. And when you listen to someone talking about the science, it's one of those things that's sort of counterintuitive because when we hear someone go out and say, if you've caught COVID, you'll never catch it again. That sounds definitive. That sounds like someone who knows what they're talking about. Whereas when someone comes out and says, well, this is what we think, but with these caveats and we have to study it more to us, that tends to sound a little bit wishy-washy, but it's the latter person you should be listening to. The person who has the doubts, the person who goes back and sees what we got wrong. And when I, the voices I find most useful, not just on COVID, but on any scientific issue at all, are those who are cognizant of what our limitations are, what we don't know, what we're still trying to learn, what we got wrong. Yeah, Michael Siegel. I That's something I do with politics and culture and policy, too, is I, I want the people that will admit they say wrong. I, I haven't done it in a while, but I used to do a column every now and then. I just go back and review the last six, seven months or whatever I'd said. And like, yeah, I got this right. I got this wrong. We may have to put that as a hurt tell feature. But I, I think, and I've said this on the program, and I know you agree with me on this, I think probably a whole lot of humility at the beginning would have solved a whole lot of the problems that we're having in the end game now, wouldn't it? I, I think so. I think there was a little too much certainty. You know, there, I mean, there is stuff we got wrong. We, we were wrong about that masks didn't help. We were wrong about, you know, sanitizing everything and constantly washing your hands. I mean, understandable errors. We had very limited data at that time. Um, it now, there. I think there are a lot more people agreeing that Closing the schools last year was a mistake. Um, it was an understandable mistake. You have kids. I have kids. We both know that they bring home everything. And um, so there was an understandable concern that kids would be bringing home COVID. But it's turned out that improving ventilation, having the mask, spending as much time outside, that kept the, the spread under control. So uh, I think that going to the public and saying, these are our best guesses and we may get stuff wrong, but this is, we're trying to do our best here is a, is a much better approach. And I think one that the public is generally receptive to as attested by how many people are taking the vaccines, how many people wore masks, how many people socially isolated. I mean, a lot of people went to great efforts 
to try to bend the curve. And for the most part, successfully, I mean, we now have a less deadly variant. We have vaccines, we have therapeutics. We are, the steps we've taken as clumsy as they were have saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. And that is a tribute, not as much to the scientists, but to the American public who were willing to listen and uh, do what was asked of them, even though some of it turned out to be too much. I, it, it did. It did help in the end. Yeah, we got to leave it there. My friend uh, could talk to you all day. We'll definitely have you back on. He's becoming a regular. Uh, we will get you some kind of a nice plaque and or uh, cheaply printed out dot matrix banner for being the most appeared guest on the show. Congratulations. Let folks know. Where find you. I'll, I'll talk about those. One oh, day. NFT. We need to do an NFT. Of, maybe we do a beard and non-beard NFT and one's valuable and one's not. Um <laughs> Let folks know where they can find you and follow you, Ordinary Times, of course, and other places, my friend. Uh, you can go to Ordinary Times. That has a link to uh, my Twitter profile where I have links to my video channel where I talk about movies and science and uh, my novel and other things. So uh, be sure to Ordinary Times is great. There's just lots of great stuff there. So you'll, you won't regret it. Uh, Michael Siegel. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Ah, welcome back to Herd Town. Now, here's a little tidbit. Uh, we all know during the pandemic, uh, things in the business world change, and online-focused companies did really, really well because more people are home, more people are doing things from home, so therefore, online services went through the roof. Uh, writing at the Washington Post, this is from Aaron Gregg, quote, the early months of the pandemic brought soaring fortunes for a handful of uniquely positioned tech companies that benefited from a work-from-home economy, but for many of them, it didn't last roughly two years into the pandemic. Several of 2020's high flyers have seen their stock valuations under pressure while the world returns to something more closely resembling a normal business cycle. Options Netflix stocks lost a fifth of its value on Friday after an earnings report revealed the subscriber growth had slowed and the teleconferencing company Zoom, which had become so ubiquitous in 2020 that its name became a verb akin to Uber or Google, or if you're of another generation, Kleenex, lost 60% of its stock value through 2021 as people returned to their offices. Here's why the work-from-home tech stars of 2020 had such a rough 2021, according to the industry tech. And they talk about things like the stocks have been overvalued, that many people left their homes and went back to the offices, and that the competition is heating up. So I want to read this portion of this piece, again, from the Washington Post. Both Netflix and Peloton became innovators in a fast-growing market niche, but competitors took notice of their success. Trainer, the new Construct CEO, said he believes Peloton will face stiff composition, competition from companies like Nautilus, Lulamon, and Apple, all of which have connected fitness products of their own. The long-term problem, Trainer said, is that Peloton's core product may not be unique enough to keep competitors at bay. There are so many alternatives out there, and it's not hard to do that in the first place. It's like putting an iPad on a stationary bike. It's not like that, sir. That's exactly what it was. They were just charging a premium for it. Back to the piece. Netflix also faces stiff competition in a niche it once dominated. The company forecasted 2.5 million new net global subscribers for the first quarter, compared with almost 4 million in the first quarter of 2021. In a letter to shareholders Thursday, the company admitted that added competition may be affecting our marginal growth some possible nod to gains by Disney and others. The company is learning that households have a limit 
go figure this out. Households have a limit how much they're going to spend on television, says Moody Senior Vice President Neil Begley. With streaming television, it's easier than ever to switch from one platform to another, pick a new show, and then switch back again. Retirement, that's out of the Washington Post. Uh, Turning down the noise on this a little bit, uh, the fact of the matter is the online marketplace is more crowded. Netflix has to compete with a whole lot more people. So when you're number one, which Netflix was and ran way out in front of everybody, people start nibbling at the edges of your business. They start copying your model. They start doing what you did to be successful, and it makes it harder for you to stay on top. They're learning that lesson. We'll see how they adjust. But they're in way better position than this Peloton thing. Uh, We jokingly online refer to Peloton as a cult because it was rather silly. It really is just an iPad on a stationary bike, and then they charge you an exorbitant amount of money, 2000 some dollars in some cases, for this stationary bike with an overglorified iPad, and then they charge you an exorbitant subscription fee to use the services and the things. Now, if you like that, that's fine, but you need to understand that as much of an exercise system, this was also a luxury brand. The problem with things is when money gets tight or people have less time at home, like they go back to work or after their New Year's resolution starts slowing down, luxury brands are the first things to go budget-wise. And also folks tend to get bored with fitness crazes pretty quickly. We'll see how these products go in the future. Something to keep an eye on, how technology is adapting from the pandemic going forward back to whatever this new normal is going to be. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. You know, we always try to end on a better or happier or more lighthearted note. And this is a great story. I love it. Uh, those of you that don't know, um, anytime we deal with stories like this, uh, I want to make sure I holler at my mother. Mom, I know you're listening because she comments and lets me know things that she likes and doesn't like. Uh, this one's for you. A retired special ed teacher will get a kick out of this one. Uh, reading from CBS News. In high school, she was bullied. After college, it was difficult to find a job, but through all the difficult times, Colette DeVito has had one thing that makes her happy, baking. DeVito, who has Down syndrome, decided to channel her passion into a career, opening her own cookie company. So actually, I always loved baking since I was four years old. From high school, I had been taking baking classes, said DeVito, 31. It was a hard time for me. I had no friends. I didn't have a social life. I got bullied. I got picked on, and that's why I started taking baking classes. After high school... DeVito went to Clemson University, South Carolina, but after graduating, found it very difficult to find a job. So she turned to her mother, who helped her create her own job, being the CEO of Coletti's Cookies. Coletti's Cookies, which is run out of Boston, was founded by DeVito in 2016 and has already brought in more than $1 million in revenue over the last five years. And as if starting her own business in her 20s wasn't impressive enough, DeVito is also the author of two children's books featured on the docuseries Born for Business about entrepreneurs with disabilities and runs a nonprofit. There's lots of amazing things happening. DeVito said the opportunity is coming her way. She says her favorite part about running her business is hiring people with disabilities. Fascinating story, running a full-size bakery. When you see the pictures, this is a full-scale bakery. This is a real company. And God bless her wonderful, uplifting story. There's worse ways to spend your time than being around cookies all day. That'll do it for her tell. Uh, thank you so much for watching or listening. If you're watching on the YouTube or on Big Talker FM's Facebook page, we sure appreciate you. So the way her tell works now is if you're subscribed on YouTube or any other podcasting platforms in the morning, you get the full 
blown program, turning down the noise of the news cycle. About four o'clock in the afternoon, East Coast time, you get that breakout. It'll be in your mailbox. It'll be in your downloads. If you're subscribed, it will give you a notification, hopefully, and you will get the Hertel Good Talk portion, which is just that day's interview. You want to contact us directly, Show at gmail.com, Show at the Twitter. You can always get a hold of us either which way, and we sure appreciate you. So wherever you and yours are, across the street and around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well-fed. And we'll see you again tomorrow for more Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.